Nomad Athlete Radio is brought to you by super nutritious, super delicious Aloha Protein Powder. Get through the holiday rush with a rush of pure, energizing plant-based protein. Choose from chocolate or vanilla blends for 18 delicious grams of protein power built from the very best whole food ingredients. Enter promo code ALOHA20 on aloha.com to get 20% off orders of $50 or more through December 31st, 2015. This episode is also brought to you by Thrive Market. Here at Nomad Athlete, we care about what we put in our bodies, but as anyone who favors whole organic foods knows, good food can get expensive. Enter Thrive Market, an online shopping club offering the best brands and groceries for up to 50% off retail price and shipped all over the United States for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash athlete to start your free two-month trial and get 15% off your first order. Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to No Meat Athlete Radio. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of No Meat Athlete Radio. I'm Matt Frazier, joined for now by Doug Hay, but pretty soon we're going to shift to an interview with Dr. Garth Davis, author of the new book, Proteinaholic, How Our Obsession with Meat is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. Doug, are you obsessed with meat, would you say? I would say I am not obsessed with meat. No. I would say but that would the be... the average American is. The average American is probably obsessed with meat. Mostly bacon, it seems, is what people get most excited about. People do love bacon. Yeah. I had some coconut bacon yesterday at Ooh. Plant Restaurant in Nashville where I went for a little pre-Thanksgiving dinner. With yeah, how, how was that? Was that good? It was really good. So was it, so the Plant, for people who don't know, is the, uh, kind of a fine dining vegan restaurant here in Nashville. Um, did they try to mimic a Thanksgiving dinner, a traditional Thanksgiving dinner, or how does that work? No, I've, I've been to it three years in a row, uh, mm-hmm. and it's not always that expensive. It's just, I guess the price is going up. Maybe they're donating more. I don't know. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't be trashing plant for charging a lot for the Thanksgiving, um, because we really do enjoy it. Um, so no, it's, I don't know. They, they sort of have fall like flavors in their foods, but it's not really Thanksgiving themed. There's no like Turkey substitute or anything like that. Okay. They're not serving the, the, what was that thing that the soy ducking or something you talked about? The veg ducking? <laughs> the veg ducking. Right. Yeah. They're not serving that. Uh, but lots of good flavors, and it was a good time. Cool. Yes. So anyway, um, so we've got Garth coming up. I don't think we've talked about Garth too much. He was on the Rich Roll podcast a few months ago, shortly mm-hmm. after uh, Marshall Health Fest, when Rich and he recorded their interview there, uh, because that's where I met him as well. Uh, we talked a little bit, but mostly I learned about him by listening to his talk, and uh, the talk he gave, I was really, really impressed by. And you'll hear me mention this in the interview. I just he he did such a nice job of coming at this vegan nutrition thing from the perspective of a medical doctor. He's a surgeon, I believe. Um, so with with all the the facts and the science and all that, but presented it in a way that for me was better than I've seen any other vegan doctors present their case for this diet uh, because he he seems to like read the books and be up on the the stuff about habit change uh, mm. and about, I guess the motivation is an entirely different thing from habit change, but you know, he, he kind of just gave a lot of good take home things and said, rather than like, here's the ideal thing and, and therefore just go do this ideal thing. It was kind of like, here's the ideal thing. And here's what you can do when you get home, you can start doing this. And I think he even mentioned something like talked about a journal or, or like vision boards or putting pictures of healthy foods or, 
yourself the I don't know things that would help you think of of yourself the way you would like to be like putting that on your desktop background image so just lots of little tricks and stuff like that that I found sort of refreshing coming from a doctor yeah and uh, found myself really motivated by his his talk so uh, I was excited to have him on and uh, I'm gonna also listen to his his Rich Roll interview because I have not heard that yet but uh, he's he's good cool yeah. yeah. So, um, that's it. So, this is going to be, I guess, our second protein episode ever. We did the one before when you and I realized we had never done a podcast episode about protein, which is <laughs> weird. Well, uh, and, and this is kind of timely, right? Because you are, are pretty into protein these days, right? <laughs> I mean, let's not say that I'm into protein. <laughs> but I think, I think people do, at least for the past year or two, I've, I've often talked about how I don't typically take protein powder. Uh, I actually have started taking it again. Uh, which has nothing to do with the fact that our sponsor is a protein powder. Mm. Uh, but I, I was it sort of with, with not having a, a good running goal or not being able to get really excited about running, I did get excited about trying to bulk up and, and like put on weight. I, I just enjoy doing that now and then. It's what I kind of how I got started with fitness was doing that in college. So I've, I've been back to that, and I found the protein powder. I don't know if it's actually helpful for that, but it, to me, it, it's – I mean, what I'm doing is working, and, and protein powder has been a part of that. So – you know, I, I like protein powder for targeted uses like that, and I also think for someone who's brand new at the beginning of a plant-based diet, uh, it's also useful for them too. I mean, mainly from a psychological perspective, I think it just people have a lack of confidence in how much protein they're getting, especially when they're brand new at a diet like this. Right. And that's such a big hang-up. I think a lot of people fail at plant-based diets, uh, not for lack of protein, but because they think they have a lack of protein. Mm-hmm. So, and I really do believe that you know, if you feel like you're not getting enough protein then there's a good chance your body's going to respond like you're not getting a pro- enough protein. So, yeah. Well, um, I don't I don't know if it's the powder or what, but I have definitely you can definitely tell that your body is is changing. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. I'm glad you you noticed that my body's changing. <laughs> not like going through puberty at that type of time. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> Wonderful. Awkward. Okay. Um good. Yeah, so I I mean I I like doing it I, my body seems to uh, fluctuate its weight quickly like when i when i stop doing any effort to keep weight on or put weight on i will lose it quickly uh, more than i would like to lose and then when i make a serious effort and maybe it's just from having practiced it a lot and having done it a lot in college and tried different things and figured out what works uh, i've gotten somewhat good at at you know being able being able to put on weight fairly quickly when I want or need to. And I actually wrote a post about this a while ago called uh, The Skinny Vegan's Guide to Gaining Muscle. We can link to that in the show notes. Um, But what I'm doing this time is much different from that. That time I had this thing in there called a fat shake, which was sort of representative of my whole approach. And this fat shake I figured out was 1,000 calories and it would have soy protein powder, just some kind of soy isolate that I bought at at the nutrition store, which is not – I really don't believe that kind of thing is good for you. Um, if you're going to do plant-based protein, stay away from the soy protein isolates for sure. Uh, so I, I was doing that. I would put coconut oil in there. I would put almond butter in there. I'd put all these kind of like not natural sort of whole food supplements, but like glutamine powder and all these different things. So it was not a, not a healthy approach to doing it. It was nice to prove to myself and to anyone who read that post that, you know, you could actually bulk up on a plant-based diet. Uh, but when someone emails me asking that question, how do you do it? I often send them to that post, but then I preface it by like, this worked and it probably will work for you, but don't actually do it for very long because it's just, it's just not a long-term healthy thing to do. <laughs> so what I'm trying to do now is doing it the healthy way and uh, ha- has worked out so far, but I'm looking forward to 
continuing it, and I will probably report on those results at some point. Maybe some before and after shirt off photos. Oh, <laughs> I, little selfies in front of the mirror. I I doubt I will do that. I've I've kind of always been firmly against people doing that. I think you should do it. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. <laughs> okay, so um, that's that's it. That's I think enough of a of an intro here. We do have the bundle sale. This is Black Friday. That this episode is going live, and if you were around last year, then you know that Black Friday for Nomad Athlete means the Nomad Athlete Vegan Fitness bundle sale this is our second one last one was really really a big success and people seem to love it uh we've got a whole bunch of guides how 22 guides is it doug this year 22 guides yep 22 plant-based fitness and health guides from a bunch of different authors many of whom you will know uh we mentioned a lot of the names last episode robert cheek rich roll chef aj heather crosby uh karen ramsey who by the way will be our next interview on no meat athlete radio uh so we will have some female interviews sprinkled in here and there um, so now I've Doug, lost my train of thought of who Doug the other Hay. guys were. Doug, the award-winning running coach, Doug Hay, <laughs> who, who is just winning awards left and right, sweeping <laughs> the nation with his awards. It's amazing. Um, it's incredible. And I'm, I'm leaving off other names because I'm just not able to keep a consistent train of thought here. But there, yes, are, but there are lots of good ones. People. And yes. where can they check that out? Where can they find that more? That is all at com slash bundle2. No dash or anything, just bundle2. In fact, if you type in com slash bundle, you'll probably go to the same place it'll redirect you um but that's only from black friday through i think the very beginning of the day on wednesday so don't miss it it's a really really good price it's like i don't know 90 percent off the total price of all these books um in a nice little vegan fitness bundle so very nice little black friday uh thing gift for yourself or someone you love uh check it out definitely okay cool. well, let's get let's... to the interview with Garth davis all right Hey everyone, it's Matt here with Dr. Garth Davis, author of the new book, Proteinaholic. Garth, thank you so much for joining us on No Meat Athlete Radio. Thanks, Matt. Honored to be here. Yeah, so uh, we met sort of briefly in Marshall, Texas, and I also, although you may not have known it, had the pleasure of hearing you speak there because I was in the back selling No Meat Athlete shirts at our booth, uh, which happened to be in the the main room where your talk was. And And I bought one. (laughs) That's right. You did buy one. Appreciate that. I really, really enjoyed your talk because, and I mentioned this in the intro, but wanted to tell it to you that I, I thought you did such a good job of being an MD, talking you know about really technical stuff and, and giving good information, uh, of course, like a lot of the vegan doctors do, but in a way where you kind of you know made it really actionable and useful and talked about habit change kind of stuff, like the idea that you can't just go change overnight. You know, we may have a picture of what the ideal is, but it's not quite as simple as saying, okay, well, here's what you should be doing. I'll go do it. Um, you know, you kind of recognize that there is a, a habit change aspect to this and how do we actually make changes happen? So I love that. And I love the, just kind of the motivation that was, that was there. I don't remember what it was, uh, but there were some, some slides that had me, had me motivated and wanted me to get up and run and start eating better. And stuff like that. Good. That was my goal. <laughs> Good. So anyway, um, I am excited to talk about your new book. I think the topic is a great one. Uh, I mean, Obviously, as you know, it's it's a joke among the plant based community. This this where do you get your protein thing? But uh, it's it's a very real thing. I mean, the reason that that joke happens is because we really do hear that question all the time. Uh, and and I think you hit on something important with this book that that, that is such a huge barrier for people, uh, perhaps the barrier for people more than anything, uh, to actually adopting a diet like this. Right. So it's, it's huge. 
Yeah. So my my first question to you, and I've got a lot about the book, um, is so I think this joke keeps going. I mean, we keep hearing this question all the time because it seems like we really don't have a great answer for it, right? Like I can give a long-winded answer about how we don't need all that much and how it's in all our foods and all this stuff. But I think if we just had something where we could say, well, I get my protein from this, then the question would go away. Uh, we don't have that. But but for you, having done all this research on protein and thought about it and written an entire book about it, what what is your answer to that now when someone asks you that and you want to answer as as briefly as possible? <laughs> See, the problem is not that we don't have an answer for it because we do. Sure. It's just, I would it's say just long. I get it from food. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, I get it from, you know, vegetables, nuts, beans, seeds. You know, all my food has protein in it. In fact, proteins in, in every food, at least amino acids are in every food, even fruit. Um, the problem isn't that we don't have the answer. It's that people won't believe it because of the hype they've heard that comes a lot from the industry that tells them that, first of all, Vegan diets need to have planned protein combinations, right. uh, which is not true. Um, that a plant-based protein is not as easily res- absorbed uh, and that you can't build muscle on a plant-based diet. All, all of this is complete and utter nonsense. But it's a myth like any kind of old wives' tale that keeps getting told over and over again. And I wrote the book because – of that exact problem that, that people didn't have a good answer for that question in the book is supposed to be a good answer. Namely, first of all, what when you say where do you get your protein, well, how much protein are you talking about? Because excess protein is actually bad for you. And number two, uh, you know, the healthiest people in the world eat the least protein. Hmm. Meanwhile, we eat the most protein in the world and we're the sickest country. Um, and so the people need to start realizing these you know, dramatic problems and this, this rage to get more protein. But you know, I, um, Doug Lyle's got a great response to where do, you get, where do you get your protein and he says human flesh because um, we actually recycle our flesh and our you know, insides and stuff and we recycle that protein. 400 grams a day we recycle. So there's a constant amino acid supply. Uh, in our blood that we could use at any time to build muscle if need be. Hmm. Wow, interesting. I've never heard that before. Yeah, yeah. We have a labile label, um, supply of amino acids, which is why you don't need to do the protein combining. Right. Uh, you know, I just wrote a post the other day on Facebook. So you don't need to combine rice and beans because it has complementary amino acids. You combine rice and beans because it tastes good. Uh, and, uh, and, and you'll get ample uh, amino acids. And if you just ate beans or you just ate rice – and then, you know, 12 hours later, you ate the opposite, you know, those amino acids would all be in your system and you'd have enough. So this idea of protein combining is ridiculous. Yeah. So that, you mentioned a few things there that I had intended to ask you, so I'll, I'll do it now. Um, one of them about complete proteins and, and this idea that, like you said, that we do need to combine proteins in of the amino acids in, in the right types at the right time. Um that's something that, that there's a lot of conflicting info on, right? I mean, I know it came out in, in the 70s or early 80s, and since then, uh, you know, it has been refuted. But I've, I've even seen recent stuff from seemingly reputable sources kind of arguing that maybe we actually do need to do this. Uh, you mentioned 12 hours later being totally fine if you if you take, you know, get the other types of proteins then. Uh, do, do you have an idea of how long, like, uh, you know, how, how, I mean, eventually, if you only ate certain amino acids and were missing key essential ones, you you would have a problem, but like how how often does that need to be? Um, I've never seen a pro- person with a amino acid deficiency in fourteen years of 
specializing in nutrition. Just never seen it. it, it you're not going to see it in the Western world. There's <laughs> enough of a variety of amino acids. This is it's just basically almost impossible. Now, it is seen in Africa, right? In people that eat only cereal for every single meal and are obviously starving. Now, the interesting thing about those Africans is it's not just that they're protein deficient; they're also calorie deficient. Um, and so it's hard to separate what's from the calorie deficiency and what's from the protein deficiency. But it, I guess to answer your question, it's impractical to even think about it in this day and age. I, I just I tell patients just don't even think about it. Don't try to think what time should I eat this and what time should I eat that. It's it, it's really just hogwash. It just, it, it's so unnecessary and it takes people away from from a more central theme, which is to eat whole foods, you know, plants, things like that. So. You know, I see a patient and I tell them, you know, I really want you to eat an apple for a snack. And then I see their diet log a week later and I don't see any apples. I just see like protein shakes or protein this or protein. I'm like, why did you have this, you know, special K protein bar instead of the apple I told you to have? It's like, well, because the apple has no protein and I need protein. And that is the fundamental problem that's making America so sick because we end up not eating fruits and vegetables because we think we need to get protein. And so we eat other sources. Right. Yeah, it's it's great to hear that from uh, from an MD. I wish I wish that message could be amplified, but I'm I'm glad that your book has has done so. Yeah, I'm trying to. I mean, uh, <laughs> I like to, you know, get this word out because you know, when I wrote this book, when I started doing this research, it was like such an aha moment and such a uh, such a departure from what I was taught in medical school and taught conventionally. I just wanted to like, you know, climb from the mountains and scream it to everybody stop worrying about your friggin' protein right right <laughs> you know, eat a whole food you know worry about your fiber i mean we you know 99 percent of people get uh require protein i would say 100 percent in this country and uh, the vast majority get too much protein in this country but knowing you know three percent of people get enough fiber so um you know our protein obsession is has taken us away from what's really good for us okay so uh i want to hear i mean how did you get Get this way, right? You went through traditional medical school education, and I, I hear so many people complain about. I wish my doctor would be on board with this vegan thing, or would just kind of get it. But it seems that so many are kind of just, you know, stuck in the track that they that they followed the traditional thing and don't want to think outside of that box. How did you get to the point of of not just going vegan, but you know, even beginning to think about this and, and accept that this might be uh, a viable diet? Right. Um- you know, it was kind of a, an evolution of things, but, you know, I wasn't a healthy guy. You know, I, I didn't feel healthy. I had irritable bowel syndrome. I had, you know, I'd gone to get a uh, insurance policy um, test done. I wanted to get a life insurance policy, and I didn't qualify for the highest grade because I had high cholesterol and hypertension, which I didn't even know. I went to the eye doctor, and they noticed that I had lipid deposits in my eye. And this was all kind of shocking to me. I was 35 years old. And the thing is, I kind of thought to myself, well, this is the natural state of affairs. I mean, you, you kind of, that's kind of what you learn in medical school, right? That, that the body is just diseased to begin with. And um, it's our job to try to fix it with medicines and, and knives and stuff. But as I started contemplating taking these medicines, I knew I would have to take them all my life. I knew it wasn't going to make me any healthier. And I also was seeing all these patients you know, with these same kind of disorders, the high cholesterol and, the, and, and all these different things. And, and I just started thinking, is this what we're supposed to be? Are we supposed to, as we age, get sicker and sicker and sicker? And so I started looking around the world um, and, and looking at what other cultures 
are like and what are they eating and how are they doing. And I had always held strong to the idea that protein was the key. I mean, I wrote a book where I told people to eat lots of protein. And um, I started really looking into the research at that point. When I mean, the first thing I noticed as I started doing the research was that America, we eat more protein than any other country in the world. We're the sickest country in the world. We have we spend the most dollars on healthcare, and yet we have the lowest longevity. And so the common sense question would be like, if we've got the lowest longevity, who's got the best longevity? And, and let's look at what they're eating. And I found a very, very common diet pattern amongst healthiest cultures, and that's very low in meat, um, very high in fruits and vegetables. Hmm. So simple. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's simple in concept. It was it, it was a much longer kind of drawn out process. I mean, I had to constantly question what I was finding and look at more research. I mean, you know, you have to look at epidemiology, but you also have to have a mechanism of, a, mechanism of action. And of course, you want randomized controlled trials. So I really did a breadth of study. And even then, it was you know difficult to change my own diet because you were so programmed over time to eat what we eat. And, um, and, and so it really was a, a, a long process and it's, you know, it's been, I guess about nine years I've been vegetarian and about two to three I've been vegan and it just, you know, continuously evolves. And then you get from vegan to like healthy vegan. Right now it's like, I just want to eat things that are good for me because it makes me feel good. It's a, it's a whole evolution, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, how do you think, I mean, if it's so simple for for you to come, and I know you're saying that you know there's more to it than just than just that, especially trying to to I guess make it make it uh, seen as legitimate among other medical professionals. Um, but how did it get? I mean, if it's if the solution is that simple, if we look at other cultures and it's less meat and more fruits and vegetables, how did we get so screwed up? Like, what, like how, how do you how did it evolve? Is it, is it as simple as saying money just caused it to go go this direction? Um. I think money plays a big role. I mean, part of it was that, you know, in, you know, the earliest part of the 20th century, we were dying, you know, at an average age of 40, 45, and we weren't dying of Western diseases. Um, there was a lot more malnutrition, uh, lack of calories and disease, and then, you know, infectious disease and stuff. And so over time, getting calories became really important in order to be healthy. And we start upping our calorie intake through industrial revolution. Uh, we were able to, you know, easily get lots of meat, which we thought was good for us because it had lots of calories. And um, then you get these gigantic corporations that will, um, lie, you know, a perfect example is the Senate Select Committee on Nutrition that was um, held in the 1970s, where Dr. McGovern, I mean, um, Senator McGovern chaired this committee and they looked at all the available research because they wanted to know why our country was getting more and more heart disease uh, and as a side note cancer and obesity and they made some very clear conclusions and that is that we have to eat more complex carbohydrates and we have to eat less meat and eat less dairy and eat less eggs and the industry went crazy over this the um the dairy lobby the egg lobby they all got together in the meat industry the national cattle association and they got McGovern voted out of office. They had the committee disbanded, and they had all the recommendations thrown away. Um, and you, you could see that even recently, the USDA um, um, employed a uh, a group of um, scientific experts who concluded that we should cut back on meat. 
Um, and yet that wasn't in the actual USDA recommendations. They ignored, ignored that. Huh. So I, I think money plays a huge role in it. And then, you know, you do what you've always done. I mean, we were trained at such a young age to eat this way. It, it, it becomes such a huge habit that it's hard to break. Right, right. Okay, so, I mean, speaking of, of that and even the USDA, you cited some specific numbers in the book uh, about, I think that the average, is it American or maybe the average person, global citizen, gets 130 grams of protein per day? I'm, I guess that, that must be American or Western. That was American, yeah. Okay. That was American. That was one study. Most of the other studies say about 100 grams, 80 to 100 grams. But either way, you know, the RDA is 56 grams for men and 46 grams for women. So we're, you know, close to doubling our uh, recommended daily allowance. And, and is, is that recommended daily allowance? Is that even a number that, I mean, given what you just said about the USDA and everything, is that even a number that, that seems correct? You know, the RDA value is is based on some pretty good science looking at um, utilization of nitrogen. Um, there's been some more complex studies lately that show a little bit higher protein requirement. But the RDA, you got to understand, is not the minimum protein we should be getting. It is the optimum protein we should be getting. In other words, if you get the RDA that if the whole country ate just the RDA, ninety nine percent of people ought to be getting enough protein. Mm-hmm. And so people think of it as a minimum. I need to get at least fifty six grams. No, you just need to get fifty six grams. Right, um, right, and right. that is based on a point eight grams per kilogram lean body mass. Um, the WHO actually says point six. MIT uses this really fancy science that says one gram per kilogram lean body weight not what you step on the scale but you have to take off your body fat percentage Mm -hmm. um and and so there's there's a lot of very different recommendations but i'll I'll tell you that the people on 0.6 grams uh, per kilogram per day do not have more diseases or problems than the people on one gram per kilogram per day and in fact if you start looking at population studies the more protein people eat the sicker they are right right so i guess if we're talking about around 50 grams per day, that that would be 200 calories, which of a 2,000 calorie diet is around 10% of your calories from protein. Is that? I mean, is That's, that is that a number that you're? you're yeah, I think t- the 10% number works well. Again, I again, yes, but I don't want people counting. Right. You know, right, right. Uh, I want to get off this thing of like we got to count and look at our percentage of macronutrients, etc., etc., etc. I've got no idea how much protein I eat a day or what percentage it is of my diet. I just eat a very healthy diet. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. And I, I don't either. And I, I also encourage the same thing, not really using those numbers. Um, in my experience, it's been useful to to have computed that before for myself and, and actually look at things and realize that, hey, fruits and vegetables themselves, many of them are above 10% or some of them are just below it. That So like if you ate only that stuff, you would still be getting the 10% of your calories from protein. And then after that, you don't need to think about it anymore because now you just eat that sort of stuff. And, exactly. And that has, has worked really well. Yeah, I totally agree. This episode of Nomad Athlete Radio is brought to you by Aloha. The holidays are approaching fast. Keep them outpaced with 18 energizing, muscle-building grams of plant-based protein. Aloha protein powder is filled with the very best whole food ingredients like organic peas, hemp, and pumpkin seeds that keep you going all season long. And they're not just nutritious, Doug. They're delicious with creamy chocolate and vanilla blends. For an extra boost of whole food, whole body, happy, healthy holiday energy, add Aloha Daily Good Greens to the mix. Just choose one of three delicious blends, chocolate, berry, or original, and pour into your favorite water, juice, smoothie, or dressing. You'll get a full serving of fruit and veggie goodness and a huge burst of energy. It's the gift that keeps on giving, Doug. 
Visit Aloha.com and enter promo code ALOHA20 to get 20% off orders of $50 or more through December 31st, 2015. And we are also sponsored by Thrive Market, healthy living's equivalent to Costco. The online shopping club lets you filter out your preferences, vegan, raw, organic, gluten-free, and all of your favorite healthy foods and products are up to 50% off. Matt, did you know that Katie and I actually put in our first Thrive Market order last week? Only because I read this ad copy before, Doug. (laughs) We ordered several of our staples like rice, ground flax, nuts, pasta, and some tea. And we were also able to pick up our favorite shampoo and soap, all at a majorly discounted price. Being able to use Thrive in conjunction with our farm share will significantly cut down the trips to the store and save us some major cash money. Go to thrivemarket.com slash athlete to start your free two-month trial and get 15% off your first order. Fitting for the holiday season, for every paid membership, Thrive Market donates a free membership to a low-income family, teacher, or military family, so you can all thrive together. Go to thrivemarket.com slash athlete to start your free two-month trial today. So what about uh, for athletes, right? Because everyone you get, you, you hear from the old school coaches and or not even old school, but everyone athletes need more protein. Is that true or is that kind of a myth? And it's really just that they need more calories. Um, well, I mean, they need more protein than your average person for sure. I mean, there is an increased protein requirement in- as, as a proportion of, of your total calories. You're saying right? more protein compared no, to the other. No, that's a good question. I, I, I don't think. Here's the funny thing. The, the research is so all over the place on protein for athletes. It's ridiculous. I, I've got a whole chapter of it in the book and it's um, like under the how much protein do you need and I, I go through a lot of the studies. But um, but it's, it's very difficult to say an exact number. But you, you hit on something. Is it percentage of calories that come from protein? I don't think so. So yeah, you have to increase your total calories and in so doing, you do increase your total protein and so that may be all that that's in play, um, but you know they typically say that you know you should get about one gram per kilogram body weight for athletes. Some people say one gram per pound body weight for athletes. Definitely, these really high protein diets that they recommend for athletes has not been found to make any difference. So there were several studies where they gave people 0. 0.6, 0. 0.8, or one, and the 0. 0.8 and one group did the same, but the 0. 0.6 did a little bit worse as far as increasing muscle strength and muscle protein synthesis. Uh-huh. Um, so I do think people uh, in general need a little more protein, but like you say, it, it probably is, you just need to eat more, and in that eating more, you'll get more protein. Yeah, right. So those those really high, I mean, that to us seem like extremely high levels of protein, but some people don't, right? They some athletes eat six chicken breasts a day, and they try to get whatever the 150 grams of protein a day or all that. Um, you mentioned earlier in this and in your book extensively some of the dangers of too much. Can you talk about some of that? Because I think that also kind of equips people with a little bit more of a way to answer this protein question that it's not just, you know, there's not only an issue with, in fact, there's less of an issue probably of getting enough protein than there is with getting way too much. So can you talk about some of those things? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the first mistake people make is to look at like a bodybuilder and think that this is a healthy person. Right. Um, Because just because they have those bodies does not mean they're healthy. In fact, they've got bodybuilders in general have very short life expectancy, very high heart disease. The vast majority of these big bodies that you see on the web and stuff are taking uh, anabolic steroids. 
it's a humongous problem. And so they didn't get that way because they ate a bunch of chicken breast. They got that way because they, you know, took 5,000 units of uh, testosterone daily. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's vitally important to understand that, you know, you want to eat a healthy diet that's going to make you feel good for the rest of your life. So uh, what these guys are doing are thinking about looking good for a competition six weeks away and they're going through these extreme dieting phases of bulking and cutting, and it's not practical for the average person. But yet we look at what they do and try to incorporate it in our daily lives, and that's that's a serious problem. What, one thing you find in people that are on very high-protein diets, if you look at their urine, they have very high urine cortisol levels. And urine cortisol is a reflection of the adrenal gland secreting cortisol, so it's a stress response. So these very high proteins put the body in stress. Your body can't utilize that much protein at one time. And they eat these six chicken breasts, but your body could probably process one chicken breast worth. And so um, what happens is most of that protein either gets turned to sugar through gluconeogenesis and then eventually stored as fat um, or gets turned into urea. And uh, you get a real high urea burden, and that could really affect your life. Um, you're, when you're eating a very high-protein diet, you're getting a lot of acid in your body because these are amino acids you're consuming. Your body has to neutralize that acid, and it does so by leaching calcium from muscles, uh, which will affect your muscle strength. Uh, and so over time, while they might build muscle, eventually they're probably going to be breaking it down because of the acidosis. Not to mention that the acidosis is associated with diabetes and high blood pressure, possible cancer, inflammation in general. And, and just eating these foods creates inflammation in the body. So these people are constantly inflamed. And you hear from a lot of plant-based athletes about how they always feel so great. They don't feel that inflammation and that difficulty recovering that they that, that they used to feel. And, you know, the problems with me could go – I could go on and on and on. Heterocyclic amines, increasing IGF-1. It just goes on and on and on, uh, the amount of complications you get from eating it. Hmm. Okay. okay. So um, speaking of IGF-1, I, I've wondered about – and for those who, who don't know, that's – I mean I, I'm not going to be totally as, as technically correct as you are here, Garth, but uh, – it's it's a hormone that the, the production of which is stimulated by consumption of complete proteins, but specifically animal proteins. Um, I've I've read some interesting things from Dr. Furman saying that you know even complete soy proteins, complete vegetable proteins uh, like like soy protein or these some of these isolates that 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 can actually stimulate IGF one, and it, it almost seemed like the the um, you know recommendation based on that would be avoid complete proteins because they can actually be the ones that that act like animal proteins in the body. Is, yeah. is there anything truth to that sort of thing? I mean, there is a little bit of truth to it. Increasing um, soy does increase IGF-1, but does that, re- does that translate to increased cancer? Uh, and, it, and it doesn't seem to. Plant-based eaters don't seem to get an increased risk of cancer if they eat more soy. In fact, in many studies, it's less. Now, what happens if you eat soy is you do get a rise in IGF-1, but you also get a rise in IGF-1 binding globulin, and it appears that that binding globulin binds the IGF-1 so that it's not active in affecting your cells. Uh, and so that might be the protective effect that animal proteins have – I mean vegetable proteins have over animals. Right. Interesting. Okay. So I brought up a few things here, especially like that and the, and the complete proteins issue, uh, which speaks to kind of a more general issue that you also address in your book that I really enjoyed – um, of how do you deal with with 
conflicting advice, and I guess in your book you specifically address it as how do you decide which which studies are legitimate? Because you know in this internet age when we're sharing everything and and the stuff that we we want to hear tends to get shared more often, unfortunately, than the stuff that we probably yeah. need to hear. Um, so can you give people just kind of some of the, the I know that's not a not a short section of the book, but just a very quick, uh, you know, yes. I, just, I just get it all the time. How do you deal with conflicting information? Well, I mean, first of all, you got to understand there's a lot of information out there and knowledge is not information. Knowledge is being able to you know, draw conclusions from information based on experience and, and the prior consumption of that information. And so any one study does not prove anything. You know, there's no one study that proves anything. There never will be. As scientists, we look at a study and use that as a base ground. You know, every kind of, you know, really good scientific article um, will will basically say this needs to be proved more with more tests. So we don't ever take one study as an answer. Secondly, you got to look at the funding of the study. I mean, if it's funded by the egg industry, 100% of the times it's going to show eggs favorable. That's always been shown to be the case. Or what? It just wouldn't see the light of day if it, if it didn't? Yeah. I mean, well, they, they, they pay these scientists and the scientists do these really bad studies that um, – Let's put it this way: what the what, what the studies have shown is that if an industry pays for the study, the study will show the result that the industry wanted. Okay. However, that happens, it happens. Um, I mean, things to look at. I mean, a study of a few people, you know, you know, ten people did this diet. That's pretty worthless. I mean, the, the thing with ten people is you could get a lot of chance correlations, mm-hmm. uh, whereas you, you get a correlation, but that could happen by chance. And also really short-term studies don't tell you much. I mean, who cares how much weight you lose over six weeks? Um, I want to know what your weight is two years from now. And if you got sick because of doing, I mean, you know, I can make you lose weight by giving you chemotherapy, but that's not a good way to lose weight. Right. So, um, so, you know, you, you got to look a little bit more practically at these studies. The study should be, you know, um, published by good reviewed journals. Now, there's still bad studies in, in, in some of the top journals, but it, it certainly has more credence if it's coming from this big journal. I mean, some of it's going to be really hard for the layperson to sift through. I mean, I kind of go over it a bit in the book. But my point, like I arrived at this idea of – plant-based diet being the ultimate diet, not necessarily vegan, but plant-based diet by a a whole varied amount of different studies. In other words, I rely heavily on epidemiology because we can't do long-term diet studies. People don't stick with diet. So I want to know how people do that are naturally plant eaters through the course of their life. But I didn't take just one epidemiologic study. I took epidemiologic studies from around the world with millions of people uh, being evaluated. But then I also looked at a mechanism of action. So, for instance, if I say in epidemiology that you find a correlation that meat consumption leads to diabetes, I got to have a mechanism of action for that. You know, if, if for instance, uh, there was a study that came out to, to show that things could be just chance that showed that if the AV, if the AFC football team wins the Super Bowl, the stock market goes up that year. Uh-huh. But there's no possible correlation. There's no possible mechanism of action for that to happen. So you could say, well, that study was just by chance that that happened. Um, so, you know, likewise, you have to come up with a mechanism of action. So uh, I might have epidemiology that shows that 
that meat causes diabetes, but I need to know how does the meat cause the diabetes and is there science to show that? And then if meat causes diabetes, if I put someone on a low meat, high vegetable and fruit diet, does that lower diabetes? And so all of these have to go together to come up with this conclusion that meat is associated with diabetes. You can't just take one study. And you're saying like this is generally accepted in, in science or is that just sort of what you're saying – looking at all this, that we need all these things? Um, it, the science is extremely strong. If you mean generally accepted, if you mean if you ask your doctor that, he probably doesn't know that because he hasn't read the studies. I give these talks to doctors. They're like, really? I didn't know that study was out there because it's just not their field of medicine. They don't study it. Gotcha. gotcha. All right, cool. Well, Dr. Davis, I know you do not have a lot of time left. Uh, briefly, though, I do want to mention you being an athlete. We haven't really talked about that. And in, uh, in Marshall, you mentioned that you were, and in your book, that you were trying to qualify for Boston, which is cool. How close are you to that now? I was 335 in September. Okay. Um, September a year ago. Uh, this year, I've been a little bit more focused on building some muscle. I got to get to 325. Okay. Um, okay. But I don't run, I don't run that, like I, I ran three days a week to get to that 335. And that was from my, uh, in 2001, I did 356 and 354, I think. And so it was a pretty big improvement to 335. And I think I'm probably gonna be able to hit 325 uh, at the end of this summer is my goal. Uh, but I've been working a little bit more on CrossFit type exercise and uh, building some muscle strength and uh, lean body mass. And so that I'll be stronger at the end kick. Gotcha. Right. Well, good. Because CrossFit can need a little, uh, some vegan voices in there to talk about protein. Oh, definitely. But there's, there, it's growing, actually. There's a, there's a pretty good community of vegan CrossFitters now. Really? That's good. That's really good. Yeah. And then you're doing, uh, are you into Ironman or half Ironmans or something? I've, done, right? um, I've done an Ironman. I've done half Ironman. I do a lot of uh, shorter races. I would like to do more Ironman, but... As a surgeon with two little kids and a wife who doesn't like me going out for eight-hour bike rides, it becomes difficult. But I'll do another Ironman. I, I mean, I would love to try to qualify for Hawaii, although that's a really tough endeavor hmm. um, and takes you know 20 hours a week that I don't have right now. But for now, my goals are get to Boston. Hopefully, uh, I'm going to try and do the Ventura Marathon in September and see if we can get there. Good, good. Well, as you know, of course, we can always use more uh... – more vegan athletes doing great things, and I think, especially being being a doctor, I mean, the, it just adds another another kind of level of uh, credibility. You know, I mean, you, you can say that this this freak athlete who happens to excel on a vegan diet is is just that a freak. But I mean, once you've got someone who can kind of back it up with with uh, you know all the all the scientific type of things we've talked about here, I think uh, as you know that that only helps the cause. So uh, right. thank you for doing what you're doing, and I hope everyone will check out the book. I hope also that we've gotten that you have gotten the sense of uh, of what a just kind of information-packed book this is. It's called Proteinaholic, How Our Obsession with Meat is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. Uh, it's on Amazon. I assume it's in bookstores as well. And uh, we should mention that it's written with Howard Jacobson, who was also a co-author on uh, T. Colin Campbell's book, Whole, and a guy who is a friend of mine. Yeah, great guy. All right. Well, thank you very much, Garth, uh, and enjoy the rest of your day, and thank you for your time. Thank you, Matt. Take care. All right. Talk to you later.